Good morning, everybody. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? I am too. Um, some announcements. Ladies' Bible study tomorrow night. Ladies, please attend that. It's, uh, I hear great things. I'm excluded. Um, that's true. That's true. <laughs> He's quick. <laughs> um, if you're interested in, in joining our church, please let me know because you go through a membership class, and I'll put that together. We have at least one person who's interested in that. And the only other announcement I have is I want to read a card from Sharon and Daryl Bagley. Dear church family, on behalf of my brother Bradley, his family, and all of us, we cannot thank you enough for all your prayers and support during our sister-in-law Francis's illness and passing. Thank you, too, for the lovely flowers. The Lord has truly blessed us with a sweet and loving church family. Blessings and love to all. And that is so true. It, we were talking a little bit about that in, in Henry's excellent class this morning, that the class is on expository listening. So it's teaching us how to stay awake during pastor's uh, sermon. But it also has to do with preparing our hearts to worship, not just so what we can get out of when we come here, but we're truly a body of brothers and sisters where we're here to serve one another. And you may not be gifted in preaching, but you can be gifted in encouragement or love or compassion or giving and that's one reason God has us here to help one another grow in the love of the Lord and how to uh, live this Christian life that can be really difficult at times so don't think you're useless God has a, a purpose for you it's just not in the pulpit Glad you hadn't run me off yet. Well, today is Father's Day, and I want to wish you a happy Father's Day, and I hope you have good celebrations. Um, we have a meal planned with my family, and it's an enjoyable day. Today in the church, though, for us here, I like to take the time to focus on aspects of being a, an example as a father, whether you have the immediate stewardship of children or whether you are part of the church and provide an example for those little ones. We're going to have some sing here in just a bit, and I don't know if I forget to uh, mention this, but we'll sing a song here in just a bit before the children sing. And I want you to sing this song. It's in your worship folder here, the children of the Heavenly Father. And just Remember uh, the good gifts that God has given us and our role and responsibility, which might vary significantly uh, from each of us, but all of us are called to follow Christ, to walk in integrity, and see others come along and follow in our steps as we follow Christ. That's our call. I think in some great degree, this concept of masculinity, which is expressed by fathers, is on the decline significantly. And 
I bring this up once again to, because I don't mind repeating myself, concerning a definition of masculinity. It's in your bulletin. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. If you want more details, you can find uh, the article that's written, hundreds of pages on this, under the website, Biblical Manhood and Biblical Womanhood, something certainly that would be helpful to restore in our day. But if you'll note here the way this is phrased, and this is just a summary statement that comes from God's Word, this idea of providing and protecting and leading, I think, is sums it up very well. Of what it means to be a man. And ultimately, a father or a father figure. To indeed walk in integrity. It's missing in a great way. And so we're calling the church, and the men in particular, to do that. And I'm thankful to be a part of this church that has, and has always had, a lot of men who have acted like men, who have provided, who have protected, and who have guided, who have given an example for others to follow. I have a gift for you today just to commemorate today, and I think I have some helpers over here to help hand these out. So I want to pray a blessing for all of you, men age 16 and up. That's the way we'll commemorate this day, age 16 and up. If you'll stand for me, I'm going to pray a prayer, a blessing, and I'd like the church to pray along with us, and I have um, some young men, I think, to hand you a gift as a token today. You guys can just diverse, spread out, and hand them out. There you go. Here's one up here. Just hand. <laughs> this little book, by the way, <coughs> um, written by R.C. Sproul, What Can I Do With My Guilt? I think it's a really helpful book to read, brief. One nice thing about R.C., uh, he was profound and concise. I'm neither. <laughs> um, but I, he was very, very good at, at putting words together and phrases and ideas. This thing, I encourage you to do this. Think through this little booklet, read through it, it won't take you long, and then maybe pass it on. If you read it, you'll find he used it as an apologetic, and I've heard him say that before. This is an intriguing question. What can I do with my guilt? And that's part of the problem folks have. They don't really know what to do with it. One of the things they do is just pretend they don't have it, but deep down inside they know they do. And there may be a time when they need to know what to do with their guilt, and you have that answer. So I want to encourage you to perhaps read this and then pass this on. I'll read this text of scripture before I pray. And just I've used this before and I like it. It's it really appropriate to the time. From 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this is a charge for you young men who are just starting out and for us older who have been there to continue on. Paul would write to his protege, Timothy. He calls him his child because 
He was a father in the faith to him. He was the exemplar that we are called to be. He says to Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is what we're called to do, to be faithful and to pass that on, this entrusted word that we have. It will cost you much to do this. This is why God made you men, to share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He goes on and uses two additional analogies. He's first the soldier. A soldier, no soldier, gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. We have the rule book right here. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. This is not an easy task that we're called. It's hard. It's exhausting. It's 24-7. Think over what I say Paul would tell his young protege, Timothy, the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today on this day in which many will celebrate and remember and think about the good gifts of fathers that you have given them. And for those that have assumed that role in their immediate care and the stewardship of children, I pray, Father, for them that indeed they would know and understand that you will provide the strength that is needed to accomplish a task that is before them. I pray that you bless them and keep them. I pray for each of the fathers that have uh, immediate care over their children that are in their home. I pray that they will continue to walk in integrity. I pray that you give them the strength to indeed suffer hard and sacrifice be a provider to be a guide and certainly to be a protector from that which is evil I pray in doing so that all of their children would come to know you our heavenly father who we are simply to be exemplars of for those of us who have don't have the immediate stewardship or for those that will one day, Father, I pray that we would all continue to walk in integrity so that we might stand for truth in the tempest of the day in which the winds and waves of uncertainty and falsehood seem to be battering over the the banks of what holds back evil. I pray that you suppress it in our own life first. May we be humble servants of God, work diligently, but I pray for an incredible harvest of faith and faithfulness. May you bring out many sons and daughters to praise your holy name. May we see the fruit of this labor 
that you have called us to do. And what a great privilege it is. And we praise you for that and look forward to many fruitful days. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you thought you could be seated, but now we can all stand. Man, you just got to keep standing. That's part of being a man. <laughs> You're not done yet. 123 in your hymn book, Blake's going to come lead us. And I'm glad he chose this to, to think in connection about God our Father as he comes to, to lead. And, and think about it as a prelude to the children coming to sing. And I know that will be a blessing. I'll let you sit down for that. <laughs> and so let's sing together 123, Children of the Heavenly Father.
choir. Let's all take our hymn books and stand, and we're going to do a responsive reading on 642. So 642, we'll stand together, and then we'll go right into the, our hymn, God of Our Fathers. So we'll do the responsive reading, 642. I'll be the worship leader, and then the congregation will be the worship participant, and then we'll all uh, be at the end with the worshipers. So 642. Responsive reading. Let's begin. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his command, the ordinances and statutes. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant, he swore to your fathers as it is today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares about you.
streaming. Let's turn to number 46. Let's go to 46 in our hymn books and sing, This is my Father's world. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Good morning, church. What a beautiful day to praise the Lord. Amen. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. And thank you to my children for making me coffee this morning. I appreciate that. Um, this morning we're going to be reading Acts chapter 9. We're going to be continuing after the conversion of Saul into Paul. In your pew Bible, that's going to be page 918 in case you don't have your Bible this morning. Again, that's page 918 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 43. In light of how we're reading about Saul's conversion, I was reading a John Owen book called The Glory of Christ, which is fantastic. And uh, it takes some time to get through how it's written 500 years ago, but it's, it's truly fantastic to read uh, The Old Men of God. Um, let me read this quote while everybody's turning again to Acts chapter 9. The original glory of Christ, given him by his Father, and which by faith we may behold. He and he alone declares, represents, and makes known to angels and men the essential glory of the invisible God, his attributes and will, without which a perpetual comparative darkness 
would have been on the whole creation, especially that part of it here below. This is the foundation of our religion, the rock whereon the church is built, the ground of all our hopes of salvation, of life and immortality. All is resolved into this, the representation that is made of the nature and will of God in the person and office of Jesus Christ. If this fails us, we are lost forever. If this rock stands firm, the church is safe here and shall be triumphant hereafter. Herein, then, is the Lord Christ exceedingly glorious. Let's read scripture together. Acts chapter 9, verses 23-43. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. Who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and amongst them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here, and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydia. There he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside him, all, excuse me, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was still with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for a day that uh, we're recognizing fatherhood and, and, and reality manhood, Lord. We thank you for that. As confusing as the world is right now and as confused as the world is, we stand as a beacon of biblical truth to stand throughout time. 
Lord, we thank you for all the blessings today, God, that we do not deserve. We're totally depraved in our sin apart from you and apart from Christ. We want to thank you for all the new children in the church, Lord, and the sound of children. We pray today for the salvation of our children. May we preach and live the word faithfully, Lord, in our homes to set a godly example that glorifies Christ and points them in repentance towards Christ. Lord, help us to be servants in all aspects of our lives, servants of the gospel of Christ, servants of one another in the church, and servants at home and in the workplace. Give us opportunity, Lord, to speak your name, whether it be in the workplace, in the home place, in the marketplace, Lord. Let the world see a set-apart people, not living for today or tomorrow, but for the world to come. We thank you again, Lord, for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition in your word. We ask that you bring us more brothers and sisters in Christ who desire holiness and have a hunger for your word. Lord, sanctify us daily and help us to hate our sin more daily, to become more like you. We desire today to exalt your name. We ask, Lord, for you to open our hearts and our minds, first in worship as we've done, in song, but most of all in the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that you break hard hearts today. Save anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't know Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you help us to use all things, Lord, as fathers and mothers for good in our lives. Things that can be used for good and evil, Lord, let us only use those things for good. Let us glorify Christ in all things that we do. We ask that you bless the offering today, Lord. Help us to use it only for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things today. Amen.
Romans 5, 8 says, God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's take our hymn books and stand once more and turn to number 101 and we'll sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. 101. giving his only begotten son. And I hope that you truly do know Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to look at Christ to a greater degree from Hebrews chapter 7. I invite you to turn Hebrews chapter 7. Our focus is going to be on this concept found in verse 26 through 28, where Jesus is called a fitting priest. And I would summarize it, a fitting priest who has been made perfect forever. This book of Hebrews, as I've mentioned, is reads, at least to me, like a sermon. The theme is certainly the supremacy of of Jesus Christ. The practical benefit, it is this one who is then necessarily mediating on our behalf. 
In other words, he didn't have to, but the only one that actually could. And God has determined this from the very beginning. In time, as we've looked before, you can find it in Genesis chapter 14, a priest would come along by the name of Melchizedek. And God sent him to typify, illustrate, if you will, the Messiah that would come. David makes that very clear in Psalm 110, that this Melchizedek represents Jesus Christ. The preacher of Hebrews, however, is, well, I would say frustrated to some degree. That may not be the best way to describe it, but it seems that way as he's looking at the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. His audience, Hebrews, are considering going back to the Levitical system, that is to another high priest, another priestly system, when they've been called to Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And there is none who would compare. All that went before Jesus Christ pointed to him, even this one, Melchizedek. I thought it might be helpful at this point to step back in time a little bit in the book of Hebrews just to then walk you forward. We won't go all the way back, but a little bit. Go back to chapter 4 to remember this argument and how it's moving forward. To get to the point that he's making here in verse 26 of chapter 7, (coughs) and that Jesus Christ is the one who fits, perfectly fits. In verse 14 of chapter 4, remember, the preacher said, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, then let us hold fast our confession. This is why you would hold fast, because of Christ. And he would go on to explain, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Result, practical benefit, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why would you come near to the throne of grace, which Christ is seated on? Two big reasons here to receive mercy and to find grace to help in the time of need. It's very practical then, recognizing this ministry of Jesus Christ as our mediator, one of mercy and one of grace. Mercy not giving us what we deserve. In grace, certainly giving us what we don't deserve, a gift. He elaborates then in the superiority of Jesus Christ over every other system, every other priest. He is the one who fulfills this type that Melchizedek portrayed. You can find that in chapter 5. For every high priest, chapter 5, verse 1, 
is chosen among men, <clears throat> is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. That's what a priest would do, hence a mediator, right? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. That is, there's a sense in which this mediator has to know what's going on with the people to whom he is mediating on behalf of. Because in this case, the priest of the Levitical system, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when he is actually called by God, just as Aaron was. This portrays Jesus Christ, and that's what he gets to in verse 5 of chapter 5, where he says, So also Christ didn't exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, quote from Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Here is the unique one, Christ, he comes forward. And also then, verse 6, he says in another place, that's Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. This learning is experiential. Here is God. God the Son, taking on human flesh to mediate between God and man, to, to really understand what's going on in your condition and actually experience it, not just know about it intellectually, but actually to have walked in your shoes. But don't forget where he's going, verse 9. And being made perfect, that is complete. Note that word perfect. Being made perfect, he then became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, that is appointed by God, a high priest then after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. It is hard to explain. And this is the frustration part, to some degree. I don't know if that's the best word for it, but you can sense that, can't you, in the text. It's hard to explain this to his audience. I mean, he knows because he knows what they're wanting to do. They're wanting to leave Christ. And could I tell you, anyone that wants to leave Christ for anything else, this foolishness, And it's frustrating to some degree. And in their sense, they they understand this religious system. They understand something about Melchizedek. He says, this is hard to explain to you folks. Why? Because you have become dull of hearing. Think about this. You have become lazy. You've engaged in all kinds of ritual, and you've missed the reality of Jesus Christ. He says, for this time... You ought to be teachers. You should be teaching this. Instead, you need someone to teach you again 
the basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food. <coughs> pretty harsh to some degree. Sounds pretty frustrating in many ways. I wanted to give you that background then, and we won't go through all the background in chapter 7. Then he begins to bring this back up, this idea of Melchizedek, out after giving them this warning saying that you should have known about it. It is hard to explain. It's hard to explain because you're lazy, so pay attention is simply what he's saying. But I want our focus then, and I'll just, since I gave you this big background, <clears throat> I'll just now move to chapter 7 and focus on verses 26 through 28, for which I summarize for today. We have a fitting priest who has been made perfect forever. See it in the context of this passage, 726. For indeed it for it was indeed fitting that we then should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you give us insight into your word. Many aspects are hard because we're called to think on these things. I pray that we indeed would, that we might see the glory of Christ and feel the intent of the author as he preaches of his glory. And I pray as the revelation of that truth becomes known, might it bring about life and flourishing to all of us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Chapter 7 and verse 26. <clears throat> I got this summary statement, if you notice here. See the word fitting in verse 26. And then perfect down there in verse 28. And then just moving through that, kind of in putting it in summary form, that's where you can get the idea here that he's communicating in this section about a fitting priest. That this priest is the one who is fitting. And he is one who has been made perfect forever, accomplished what he has intended to do. This word fitting simply means proper. It means something that is marked by suitability, something that is right or appropriate. In other words, this is something that, that actually works, and, and might I say, nothing else does. This is the only priest that fits perfectly. He is the perfect priest. All the other ones simply represented, even Melchizedek. He wasn't perfect by any means. They don't know much about him because he was illustrating those aspects of Jesus Christ that are perfect. He is the perfect priest because he's the only one, we might say in our idiom, 
fits the bill, if you will. He's the only one that could and does accomplish the task. The problem, and we, we know this and why this is appropriate, because since the fall of mankind in Adam, there is a gulf between God and man. To bring about this reconciliation, there has to be a mediator. A mediator that could stand on both shores of heaven and earth. This mediator would have to come from God, appointed by God. Since we rebelled against him, he would have to condescend to us. This mediator would have to also be connected to mankind. And the preacher of Hebrews mentions that. We'll unpack some of that to some degree, but you you can understand in general. This is why Jesus would say often that I have come down to do the Father's will. I'll read a text for you in John chapter 3, where Jesus says quite profoundly in 3.13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What's his point? No one knows God except God. And God came down. All these other people who say, well, I got a vision in heaven, or God told me this. They haven't been there, and they haven't seen it. We'll look at someone who has. And we'll tell you what they said about it here in just a bit. But Jesus' point is, I am the revelation of God. I explain God. If you want to know God, you must know me. He is uniquely then qualified to be a fitting high priest, a perfect one who can actually accomplish the task, and the only one. The only one who could come and truly disclose divine revelation in its fullness. The Son of Man is stated in one of Jesus' favorite expressions. It's the expression of both divinity. It is a divine title, yet it includes man in it because he has taken on human flesh. All others that would communicate anything different than this one are imposters, false prophets. To bring us to heaven, if you will, or to God, to glory, to reconcile, to be that bridge that spans the gap, he has to take on the form of man, a servant, to bear our reproach, to bring us to glory. Could I tell you Jesus is fitting, and he's the only one that can do it. From our text, the preacher then would go on to explain some of those aspects of why Christ is so fitting so that we would exalt in him. And should I say you might find yourself in a difficult time, look to Christ. 
And let me just share with you from this preacher some of those aspects about who he is. It's familiar. You've heard it before. But you know, it's good to get a reminder constantly. The, the attributes here that are, that are mentioned about this fitting priest. The first one here is holy. He's a high priest that is holy. This sounds like a Christian cliche to some degree. Uh, I'm not impugning anybody here. I'm just saying these words could be thrown about, and we don't think about it much. R.C. Sproul I gave you that other book. He, he read another one called The Holiness of God. I highly commend it if you haven't read it. I was going to get you that one today, but they ran out of them. <laughs> and understandable. But the one I gave you is good. I'll, I've ordered some more, and I'll hand them out at some point. But Sproul said, and I think rightly, that the chief attribute of God is his holiness. God's holiness is not just an attribute, but it is the lens by which all other attributes of God should be understood. What does he mean by that? The word itself simply means, or one way to think about it would be, it is, if it's something is holy, it is a cut above. Okay? There's nothing else above it. It is the exemplar in perfection. Now, if you were to quiz most folks out there, I suppose, <clears throat> see blogs and so forth on the Internet, which I don't necessarily recommend, you can wander off in all kinds of misinformation, but if you were to ask, I suppose most people would think the chief characteristic of God is love. For God so loved the world. And we all know that. But God, that is not God's chief attribute. It's his holiness. I agree with Sproul here. In fact, one of his arguments in his book, which I think is sound, is you will never hear that God is love, love, love. And he is. But what you will hear is God is what? Holy, holy, holy. That's what you'll hear. And you remember where that primarily comes from. We're thinking that this is a vision of God. This is somebody who got a peek at where Jesus is. And what is the response that, that Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6? He, he sees the angels around about the throne. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What, what is his glory? That is the perfections of his various attributes. One of them is love. So it is an attribute of God, but what kind of love is it? It is a holy love. It is a perfect love. 
what we're saying is this one of Jesus Christ, his worth is so supreme because it, it is fitting. It is perfect. It is a cut above in every aspect of his attributes. They're all holy. They're all perfection. And the earth is merely expressing that very glory, even an earth that is cursed due to our sin. You'll still look out and see a beautiful sunset. You see the glory of God. You might see it in the beauty of children who sing. You'll see the glory of God. And human beings that are made in his image that actually do something sacrificial for one another or caring for one another, even unintentionally sometimes. It's the glory of God. And God is holy. Jesus Christ is holy. I invite you, if you want to, turn to Revelation chapter 4. This is who Jesus is and who you should think of Jesus as. He is holy. In Revelation chapter 4, this is the, another vision in which we get a, a glimpse into the throne room of God. Remember, Paul went and he said, I wasn't able to tell because God had not authorized it. What did God authorize? Well, Isaiah saw... Holy, holy, holy. What, what does John see? He gets his vision. He looks and, and beholds. and He gets a vision of heaven. Drop down to verse 8 in chapter 4. He sees four living creatures, the best way he can explain, some created beings of God, each of them with, with six wings and are full of eyes and around and within, and, and day and night they never cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Same vision. But I want to note, and I won't go through all of this, but, the, but this vision and this revelation is the complete revelation of who's on the throne. It's Jesus Christ. I'll show you that in a second, but, but look here. Drop down to verse 9. This one who's seated on the throne. He lives forever and ever. Then he's given worship by these 24 elders who represent the church, who cast their crowns down before him. Those rewards in which we get as following Christ are not treasures for us to put in our pocket, but I'd argue our ability to, to worship and enjoy Christ in a greater way. Their response is, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Sounds like the very beginning of Hebrews, doesn't it? Because it is Jesus Christ, specifically, who creates all things and upholds them by the word of his power. It'll go on to explain in chapter 5 about needing someone to 
that was worthy to unroll the scroll in verse 4 and to look in it. They couldn't find anyone. They began to weep. One of the elders said, Weep no more, verse 5. The the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I hope you know who that is. Indeed it is. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, and which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The, 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 the imagery here is one of glory and power and honor. Th- this is who Jesus Christ is. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy. He would say in verse 9 of 5, Are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. He looks and sees myriads and thousands in, in this glorious worship, saying what with a loud verse, voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and, and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits down in verse 13 on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And then they all fell down and did what? Worshipped him. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is holy. Every one of his attributes are cut above. They are at the perfect level, if you will. None higher. And whether you're thinking about his love, which is indeed his attribute, mercy, grace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and yes, even his right response to evil that is his wrath you know what all of it is holy a holy love holy mercy holy grace holy patience holy kindness holy faithfulness and holy wrath all of his attributes then are always expressed in perfection this is why by the way we we believe and never doubt and should we do so, confess and, recommend, and recognize that he is a holy God who is faithful and just to forgive us our, our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is this holy one that we've also talked about in that condition, in a practical way as our mediator, though he is holy and perfect in all his attributes, he has also walked with us. And can sympathize with us so that we can receive mercy, a holy mercy, and holy grace in time of need. Back to our text, not only is he holy, the preacher says he's innocent. Innocent, verse 26. The word, I looked it up, it 
It has a <clears throat> Kakos is um, bad or evil. This one has an alpha primitive, an A in front of it. It, it, per, it pertains to something without fault and guilelessness. Laonida, Greek, English lexicon, expresses it this way. This word has a far more positive meaning than merely not being bad. In other words, this word that is negated by putting an A in front of it, it doesn't produce a term which is, here, and here this is key, which is merely morally neutral, but it designates something of a clearly positive character. That is, it, it is speaking of Christ in the sense of he is not just without sin, which he is, but he is morally positive in all things. Indeed, he is God. And when he descends to earth, then as the God-man, he would then naturally walk in perfection because that is his nature. It is perfect. It is innocent as we translate it. I'll read you a couple verses and. If you want to look at First um, Peter chapter 2, you can. But I'll read you first. In John chapter 8, in verse 46. Here they're attacking Jesus Christ and his response to them. Which one of you convicts me of sin? So if he tells you the truth, then why don't you believe him? In other words, here's my question. Could, could you ask that of anybody and not get a charge? I can't imagine anyone that, that I could say this to and not get some sort of accusation against. That's the distinction in Christ and why he is a fitting high priest. The, the other priests and other systems, they have their own problems to deal with. That's the point. He comes in absolutely perfect and innocent, and even when given the chance by his enemies, you know what? They can't think of anything. You know what they thought of, the only thing? Well, well, he said he's God, and he proved it. That, indeed, was the truth. So, why are you disbelieving anything he says? That's the point. Remember Pilate? how his response was prior to the crucifixion. A pagan man heard all the reports, examined him himself, and what was Pilate's verdict with Jesus? You can find it in Luke 23, 4. I find no guilt in this man. This is the uniqueness of this priest. All the other priests, you can find some guilt Guilt is simply breaking of the law. There's none because he has none in him. This is Peter's response. Peter that walked with Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2 down to verse 21. Christ provides 
an example for those that would follow Christ. He said, you've been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. So, so what steps did Christ lay down? They were all fitting. Put your foot in that, and it is always in the right direction. You don't know which way to go. Look to Christ. That's his point. Why? Well, how is Christ's path? Verse 22, that's what I wanted you to see. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Didn't even think about it. Always walking in perfection. What does that look like? Well, he was reviled. That is, he, he was tested, tempted in that sense, but he didn't revile in return. He suffered, but he didn't threaten. He instead had faith and entrusting himself to him who just judges justly. That is who God. He does this, enabled to bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Back to our text, the third aspect. Holy, innocent. And the third word I want you to see in our text in verse 26 is this word undefiled. Now to the those within the Levitical system, they understood the condition of man would create a defilement, the sin, if you will, and would need to be cleansed, at least ceremonially, to partake in the various practices. The the idea here of unstained is we know he's innocent, right? He, he, He doesn't have any guilt, but he comes to this world, and this world is full of contamination. Think of it that way. It's sort of like you going into some place that is dirty and you try to clean it up. You're going to get some dirt on you. And what he's arguing here is that though Jesus came and he came into the world and he came into the world's system, the world system didn't come into him. It didn't stick to him at all. Although he might have been in it and of it and around it, although he might have sat with sinners, walked with sinners, talked with sinners, none of it rubbed off on him, we might say. That sense, he is, he is unstained. He is uncontaminated. He, he didn't need to ceremonial clean, be ceremonially cleaned because he was all the time. The, the, the corruption of the world had nothing on him. Satan had nothing on him. This is a distinction between you and I. He's unstained. He's holy. He's innocent. I want to give you a fourth thing. I'll jump to because I'd rather spend more time on this one. And this is separated from sinners. So back to our text. It talks about Jesus not only being holy, innocent, unstained, but he also says he is separated from sinners. What does this mean? Separated from sinners. 
this separation that he's talking about, I just said, he's innocent, comes into the world, not stained by the world, not corrupted by the world, right? No guile in his mouth. So, So what do you mean he's separate from sinners? I thought he was a friend of sinners and walked with sinners. Separation here has to do with a category. He's in a category or a class by himself. That's what it's pointing to. Even though he was of us and among us, he is always God. He is always the creator, even though he walks with his creation. This is when we are made like to become sons of God and to be conformed to the image of his son. We will not be the son. We'll never be God. We'll never be the creator. There is a distinct separation, if you will, between man and God. And that's what he's pointing on. We're all sinners. We inherited this through the flesh, our Adamic nature. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Perhaps you've heard that. Well, there one is one who is righteous, and that is the one who came down from heaven because he's separate in a different class in that way, and therefore he is fitting then to mediate between those that are separated from God. He can bring him them to him. And here I invite you to turn to chapter 2 in the book of Hebrews and it begins with this same concept of fitting. Chapter 2 and verse 10. And I want you to see two things here. One, here he's repeating this idea of fitting that he gets to in chapter 7. What's fitting about Christ? What, what, what fits so well? Well, he's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, and he's also separated from sinners. And yet it seems like here is a communion with sinners look at the text for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist that is he he is the creator god he in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering this perfect again refers to this idea of accomplishment the the suffering is condescending to us taking on human flesh in humility taking on sin, dying, thats all of that is the suffering. For he who sanctifies, verse 11, those who are sanctified have one source. That's Jesus Christ. That is this mediator. This is the only one. And through this, this one who is, that is separated, is the same idea of sanctified, who then separates sinners, if you will, sanctifies them, sets them apart, makes them holy before God. He is among them, though. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Drop down to verse 14. It uses a similar concept to, to talk about those who this one, who is sanctified, who is separate, who brings together. He says, 
He is therefore the children of share in this flesh and blood. He himself likewise took part of the same things. Why did he do this? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then deliver those who were through the fear of death subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful, and here's the term again, high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's a payment, covering for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able then to help those who are being tempted. That is, he understands and can sympathize with him. This is the high priest who can sympathize with us, yet without sin, because why? He's separated. He's in a unique class. All we know about humanity, everyone we know is a sinner. But that's not God's desire. His desire is that you would be a son and daughter. That you would be sanctified. That you would be set apart to him. It is this Christ who knew no sin. Who took on our sin. That we might become then the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. Jesus takes on the human nature, the real essential human nature. He doesn't take on the sin nature, and hence this is why he had the virgin birth. He didn't take on the seed of Adam, if you will. Instead, he fulfills the promise that begins all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And God, in the curse of Satan, said, this woman... It's going to be the seed of a woman. That, 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 that's not how it would otherwise be discussed. It would be the seed of the man. But here's the seed of the woman will come forward. You're, you're going to bruise his heel. That is, he will suffer. But he's going to crush your head. He will fatally kill you. And guess what? He has destroyed. It has been accomplished. Christ has finished his work. He has been made perfect forever. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained, and he is separate. He is sanctified. He is in a class by himself. And naturally, the the final word finishes out from our text. He is exalted above the heavens. Jesus Christ is exalted above the heavens. He is a friend to sinners, but he's always a sovereign God. We can call one another brothers and sisters in Christ, but Jesus isn't our brother in that way. He is always a holy God. He is always innocent. He is always undefiled. And he is always separate in a unique class And he is exalted above the heavens. And 
from this point, I will just hopscotch a little through Hebrews. Bear with me. I'm going to go. I'll do this quickly. But start from the beginning because we're going to sew this together and go one step beyond where we're at now. Because I want you to see that the, the, this is what he's been communicating in the volume of what's been going on. But centrally to understand this, that Jesus Christ is fitting priest made perfect forever. All the way back to chapter 1. This is Christ. This is who he is now. Exalted above the heavens. In verse 3, I'll drop down from chapter 1. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That is, he is God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's why things exist and continue to exist is because this one person, Jesus Christ, after making purifications for our sin, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what we saw in Revelation. This is Jesus Christ. This is the imagery, the exalted son, the ruler of heaven and earth, the upholder of all things. He is an exalted position above the heavens. Chapter 4, I'll just hit a couple. Chapter 4 and verse 14 to talk about Jesus Christ in his position and how you should think about him now. He says in verse 14 of chapter 4, Since then we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And because of that, let us hold fast our confession. Why? He, this is the uh, same idea of being exalted above the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. Chapter 6 and verse 19, a passage I've read numbers of times to you, and I, uh, I, I, there's a great passage about Christ, the steadfast anchor of the soul, verse 19. Who is he? He is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is his exalted position as a high priest, not just now, not just today, but forever and ever. Now I'm going to go one step further, and that's chapter 8. You didn't think I would get there today, but you can say we did. Because you know why? It summarizes all that's come before and I encourage you to continue your reading and thinking through this text. He says, the point we're saying is this. Are you in chapter 8, verse 1? The point that we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up and not man. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is where the preacher is going. Why would you go to anyone else? This is the one far above all things, seated in the heavenlies in an exalted place, the one who is none other than holy God, the one who is absolutely and perfectly innocent, that is, with, with no guilt in and of himself, that is unstained by anything that would corrupt, anything that we might go through, one that is in a class by himself so that he could reach down and take 
a sinful man and sanctify them before God and indeed exalted now in the heavenly. And he calls us to put our faith and trust in him and him alone. Jesus said, where I'm going, I'll take you with me. Are you with him? Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for your mercy and grace granted to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray as we think about our mediator, Jesus Christ our Lord, that we would have indeed boldness. Boldness to go because he has called us to come. And he is there, ever living, to mediate on our behalf. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment to think on these things where you're at. If Christ has just become incredibly glorious to you and you want to receive mercy and grace, you can call on them even now. Take a moment. Father, I pray that you would indeed grant us a vision of Christ. May we go often to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to have to sing Holy, Holy since you played it. You know that, didn't you? And... I hope you girls in these strings can hand. Oh, look, they're, they're like, yeah, we're all over that. So that's great. What number is holy, holy, holy? 68. 68. I think we should sing that. In the book of Revelation, by the way, it, it, the word itself means the explanation. See, all, all of this culminates with an explanation of, of who God is. And it is Christ who has revealed it. it it's why we exalt in Christ. And we can sing it in that respect. And so let's stand together and sing this delightful song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Jerry, come and lead us.
be dismissed. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.